Welcome to the Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. My name is Dr. Adriana Popescu. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and leader in the field of mental health, energy psychology, addiction, trauma, and empowerment. In this podcast, we will be exploring mental health from a variety of perspectives, from the spiritual to the shamanic and beyond. What if mental illness isn't everything we think it is? What if everything we see as a pathology is actually a possibility? What else is possible with mental health? Welcome everybody to another episode of Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. I'm your host, Dr. Adriana Popescu, and I'm so excited to have with us today, Dr. William F. Bankston. He is a professor of statistics and research methods at St. Joseph's College in New York, and he's the president of the Society for Scientific Exploration, an international group of scientists who study anomalies. Dr. Bankston has been doing research into anomalous healing for over 35 years and has numerous academic publications. His memoir, The Energy Cure, is published by Sounds True Publishers. He's also lectured widely in the US, Canada, and Europe. Dr. Bankston's research has produced the first successful cures, full cures of transplanted mammary cancer and methyl colon A3 induced <laughs> sarcomas in mice, that's a tongue twister, by energy healing techniques that he helped to develop. He's also investigated assorted correlates into healing such as EEG and fMRI entrainment and geomagnetic micropulsation anomalies in healing space. His current work involves the attempt to reverse engineer healing and reproduce healing without the healer. Wow. Welcome, Dr. Bingston. Thanks for having me. So happy to have you here. Um, you know, I was first introduced to your work at an energy psychology conference where you spoke about this phenomenal research that you had done uh, with mice and healing what is supposedly incurable forms of cancer. But before we get into that, I always like to ask my guests, how did you come to do this work? What is your story? Um, my story is, is probably similar to most, meaning it wasn't planned <laughs> and life happens, you know, and it, it happens in unexpected ways. And uh, one of my unexpected ways was a very, very long time ago. I think it was 115 years, um, a very, very long time ago. Um, I was introduced to someone who was who claimed to be a psychic. Uh, and I am a skeptic. I was back 115 years ago. I'm still a skeptic, but I investigate stuff and see, you know, what's what and what's real and what's not real. And uh, I started to study this guy and try to make his alleged psychic stuff go away. I couldn't, uh, no matter how elaborate I made the studies. Um, uh, and then he spontaneously morphed into a healer uh, and was uh, alleging to fix this and that. Uh, and I was somebody who had a, a persistent bad back, chronic bad back for uh, many years, was in essentially pain of some level all the time. And this guy came along, put his hands on my back, and it's the last pain I've ever had. Uh, and so I, I was left with at least two possibilities. You know, and here's where the fork in the road comes and, and life happens. I could either walk away and pretend it didn't happen, um, you know, somehow conceptually get rid of it and be safer, or I could try to figure out what happened. You know, how, how did this uh, happen to me? Um, and for better or for worse, I took the second road and I've been looking at this stuff for quite a bit of time now, uh, just trying to figure out what is behind this and is it amenable to scientific study and things along those lines. So I've, I've spent my time trying to take an unconventional area and put it into conventional research. Uh, and uh, it turns out it is amenable to conventional research. But uh, I didn't plan this, you know, and, and like most people, if you look back over time, you say, how did this happen? <laughs> and here so you this are. Hap this happened to me. <laughs> what can exactly. I do? Yeah. Yeah, you've really done some phenomenal work. And I think one of the things I wanted to highlight in that is that, you know, many people think, okay, well, sure, some people are just really gifted. They have this gift for healing. Maybe they were blessed with it. Who knows where it came from? But one of the things I learned from, from reading your book and, and really understanding your work is that 
healing can be taught. This is not something that's exclusive to just a handful of special people. You, in fact, yourself have been able to create a method by which people can learn how to do hands-on healing. Yeah, uh, I, I think, um, again, the skeptic in me will, will question whether there's airtight conclusions that healing can be taught. And at this point, I would say no, but it's extremely likely <laughs> that healing can be taught. Taught um, uh, what what my model that I've used uh, in my research is I always take I, I'm not comfortable hanging around believers uh, they they scare me uh, because believers already think they know the truth and it makes no difference what you're believing in so I believe it's all true I believe it's all false um, either way you're a believer isn't really open to investigation or to challenge their own beliefs uh, they, most believers spend a good chunk of their time defending their own beliefs. Uh, I'm a skeptic, which means I don't pretend to understand how the stuff works, but I'm willing to look at it and I'm willing to systematically investigate it. Uh, and what, what I've done in, in, as a model is I take already well-known biological phenomena like mice with cancer, and I introduce a single variable, which is healing, and then I see what happens. And what I, the way I do it uh, is that I take um, inexperienced people. Uh, uh, people who have, you know, they can't spell healing. You know, they've never thought about healing. They, you know, they, they don't know what I'm talking about. They think I'm doing a study in gullibility, you know, things like that. Like how, what, what else can he make us believe? You know, something, something along those lines. And uh, so I take people like that and I train them in a technique I help to develop. Uh, and then we see what happens in the lab. Uh, and so far, uh, the, the, the overwhelming anecdote is that healing uh, can be taught. Um, doesn't mean every method that's alleged out there, it doesn't mean anything like that, but certainly at the very least, we can get people to heal. And, you know, crazy geeks like me may argue about what the mechanism is by which they did it. Did they learn it? Did they, did they copy this? Did they take information from that? I, I, that's the part that I'm not sure, but certainly inexperienced people can, can produce healing. I don't know whether believers can heal because I've never tested them, because uh, again, they scare me. But I love that. You're always in the question, right? Yeah. And then that's how new information comes to us. If we've, we've, if we've already decided what's true, then there's no opening for any new information to come. So I no, love that. I mean, that's no, the hallmark no. of a true scientist, right? Is to always be curious and to always be in that question. I think it should be. I don't know that it is that widespread. Uh, so there are in, in the academy, uh, there are people who hang on to their textbooks as if they're divinely inspired and, and, and you know, they, they, uh, they believe their own texts and they believe their own press and all those kinds of things. And th those, those people scare me too, because they're defending their textbooks. Um, and, and so I think that's uh, largely a human condition. Yeah. Well, you actually talk about it in the book. You talk about this boggle effect that people yeah. just can't and it happens in in this field too you know where the the results are too good to be true this couldn't possibly be happening yeah yeah everybody i think hits a boggle threshold where they just say no that's that's too much um and and it varies for people and and probably over time if you look into this stuff it will boggle you and if you keep going you just get tears and layers of boggling uh because it, it, it the simple reality is Although I've studied healing for many, many years and I've done many, many experiments in many, many labs, uh, I don't really understand how it works, even if I have mechanisms of action that, that appear in the studies. So I've, I've, I've done a number of genomic studies looking at what happens to cell cultures and what happens to mice and what happens. Then we can look at this gene is upregulated and that gene is downregulated and all that. And the effects are real. There's no question, but the, 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 these up and down regulations uh, that you find when you do uh, research, it doesn't, doesn't really explain how it happens. So I sit there, you know, and I scratch my head and, I, and, and that's why it's called anomalous. <clears throat> and when I talk about healing, it's anomalous healing because it doesn't make sense. If you, if you read the textbook and then you look at the data, they don't match. Uh, so anomalous doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. It just means we don't have a way, a textbook, a theory that will help us to say, yeah, this is really what's going on. And now we understand the phenomenon. We really don't understand the phenomenon. And I would take it farther. 
I don't know anybody who knows, understands a phenomenon. There are believers who believe they have, but if you really go after them skeptically, uh, all, all the beliefs fall apart pretty quickly. Uh, and, and we seek the, the comfort of, you know, the illusion of our beliefs. Uh, but this, this area is ripe for theoretical development because it's, it's really confusing. So let's talk a little bit about the data. Tell us a little bit about those initial studies, the really mind-boggling um, studies that you did with mice and cancer. Yeah, I, I started out when, when I was playing with this guy and, and who annoyingly fixed my back um, uh, and, you know, screwed up my life. <laughs> I'm pain-free, but, you know, what happened? <laughs> um, we, I started dragging him around and, you know, putting his hands here and putting his hands here and see what would happen and what, what would be affected and what wouldn't. And, and it turns out, at least observationally, um, out in the real world, that um, some things are easy, more easy to treat than others. Some things respond quicker. Some things don't respond so well at all. Uh, there's a real uh, a fundamental pattern going on here that I, I'm still trying to parse out. So healing, uh, th there's a tendency for people to put healing into, I don't know, magic. You know, um, I've heard it. I mean, they think all miracles occur and it's a natural phenomenon. I just don't understand it. Um, it's a natural phenomenon. It, it's not It's not a cure for everything. It doesn't fix everything. It doesn't, at least in my, in my experience. Uh, so it's got properties that I'm trying to to untangle. So we, in, in the very beginning, you know, way, way back, um, I dragged this guy around and say, put your hands here, put your hands there, and, and let's see what responds. And, and for example, uh, one of the things that we found is he, he was not good at benign growths, but he was very good at malignant growths. And so malignant growths respond Benign growths don't seem to respond. I mean, that's a clue from nature. And, and farther, the more aggressive the malignancy, the easier and faster it was to fix. So even if we just break the world down into benign and malignant, it's better, you know, at least from this tradition, to do malignancies than a benign growth. Uh, but even within malignancies, some things, particularly seriously aggressive stuff, respond immediately and dramatically, whereas the less aggressive kinds of cancers, eh, you know, they, they, they kind of limp along. They limped in, they limp out. Uh, aggressive ones run in, rush in, rush out. Uh, so among the, the, the first observations just physically was cancer might be a good target. You know, so we're talking about here possibilities. Uh, and now since way past cancer, but the cancer seemed right away to be a pretty good target. And after watching, I don't know, a hundred or so people get fixed, I said, you know, this is interesting, but it's, it doesn't, uh, doesn't teach us much. You know, the, the, the patient, the client, the whatever it is comes in, they got whatever they have, you do the healing, and I'm oversimplifying the process. You, you, you do the healing and, and, you know, the malignancy starts to reverse. Uh, interesting, but we got a cured person, we got a cured person, we got a cured person, we got a cured person. You know, just, I mean, this doesn't, isn't going to come across right, but then what? You know, so, you, so you're curing people. Well, who cares? Um, it's interesting psychologically to find out the experiences of people who have been cured. It's interesting to see how they try to work around their own boggle effect. Like, oh, my stars, this might be real. <laughs> you know, the, oh, you know, this, this, you weren't kidding, you know, kind of a thing. I mean, all that's interesting, but it doesn't get to, it, it's not really airtight from a skeptic's point of view. So if, if I watch a case study of a person come in and you do, you know, whatever it is you do, and then the person goes out, and again, I'm simplifying the process, and, and now they're, they're better, they're cured, whatever, whatever term you want to use for it, that happens before this healing. You know, out there in the world, there are spontaneous remissions. Out there in the world, there are people who get better unexplained, you know, by, by any mechanism. Uh, and, and it's open to all sorts of boggle type uh, interpretation. But, but people have been cured before. 
Uh, and so if I'm a, if I'm a, if I'm a believer, not a skeptic, because a skeptic would look carefully at the data, but uh, if I'm a believer who believes this is nonsense, I go, oh, it's spontaneous remission, you know, or it, it's the same way that, that uh, uh, people who don't know too much will say things like, oh, it's just placebo, you know, as if they understand what a placebo is and if they understood the patterns which occur in placebo research. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a way to keep your, yourself safe. It's, it's just placebo. It's a spontaneous remission. So we get a case, for example, of someone who had metastatic cancer in the whole body um, and, and in, in a reasonably short period of time after, there's no cancer. And you go to the doctor and you go, what do you think? And they just start flopping on the floor and they go, I've heard about this. You know, I've never seen it. Uh, do you want to investigate it? And the answer is usually no. You know, there's not, there's not really an upside to doing this from, from a, a clinical practice point of view. Um, and for a single case, I would agree, you know, spontaneous remissions happen and, and weird stuff happens out there. And, you know, everybody doesn't follow the same path to the same, you know, whatever their destination might be. Um, and so I wanted something stronger. Uh, so looking around, looking around, uh, um, again, oversimplifying this, but animal research in an experimental lab is tighter in control. If someone has cancer, you don't know when they got it. You don't know how they got it. You don't know what everything that's got into them. You don't know their genetics. You don't know what they're eating. You don't know whether they've, you know, and you, you just keep going on and on. In the case of, of taking this into the lab, I guess I'm a closet control freak, um, but if you take this into the lab, you know everything that's going on. So I look around, because I think in real simple terms, is there a mouse model, is there an animal model that everybody knows everything about? And so what we came down to is a particular form of cancer, is a breast cancer, in a particular strain of mouse that has 2,000 publications about it. I mean, everybody, you know, if you're in oncology, you know this model. And in this model, all mice, all mice, no exceptions, die within a month. So you inject them with a certain number of cancer cells, you know what step one, step two, step three, death. And this is used in conventional research. So you say, well, I wonder if radiation will help them. I wonder if chemotherapy will help them. I wonder if vitamin C will help them, you know, along those lines. And then you do research and you study and you publish and you do all that stuff. And so over 2000 publications in these mice. And I said, perfect. Give me a mouse where there's no question you're going to be dead in a, in a month. And so we did our, our, our healing shtick on the, on the mice. Um, and the short version is, they were all cured uh, and they weren't remitted, they were cured. Um, remitted, remission is uh, a suppression or a, or a cessation of symptoms. Uh, these mice live their full lifespan and it's much more than that. They're, they're immune to cancer, same cancer injected into them for the rest of their lives. And so that's different than I got a story to tell you. This is done under seriously controlled conditions. Um, and so essentially that same model has become a template with different kinds of cancers. The one you were trying to pronounce earlier, you know, mm -hmm. it's a different form, it's a different form of cancer. And so we've done it with, with the, the methylcholanthrene stuff. We've done it with the mammary cancer. We've done it with, uh, immune compromised mice. We've done it with, you know, and, uh, and so I think I have at this point, I don't know, don't trust the number 18 mice experiments in five different medical schools and a couple extra independent labs in biology, uh, something real happens, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, they get cured um, and, and they're immune for life. And, you know, we, we have this pretty established. So now the question is what's associated with it and how does it work? You know, that becomes the, the thing, but healing of cancer isn't, isn't interesting. I mean, I, that, that doesn't sound right, but it's not interesting. It's established. Uh, it can be done. It is done. It can be done reliably. Um, it's very different than looking at clinical stuff. Right. Well, and so let's go there. So how do, how have you applied 
what you've learned in the lab to actual work with people? Um, I haven't done too, I mean, I've done, you know, probably a few hundred cases, um, but uh, I, I, I prefer, I'm, I'm more of a geek in the lab, you know, I'm, I'm happier. Um, uh, people scare me. <laughs> I, I call them uprights. You know, I like little four-legged things that, that crawl along cutely. And then when these six-foot uprights stand up and, you know, start arguing with me about everything, I, I don't want to play with you anymore. Um, so I, I've, I've done some people just to see what happens when you take it out into the real world. But more interesting to me is uh, the people I've trained. Uh, so I've trained a number of people, and they're doing this all over the world. I think that would be fair. Uh, and they tell now they they they're the people who who are clinically oriented, you know. And there, there's a there's a clinical mindset that is different than a lab mindset. And the clinical person, if if I've got a client, my job is to fix the client. I'll do whatever I can do. So if you if my method helps, if the other method helps, you know, it, it's. You're, you're not studying it per se, you're, you're client focused and you're doing whatever you can to help the client. Uh, the geek in the lab will um, try to control all the conditions and manipulate the variables and do that kind of stuff. So I've done, you know, a few hundred people certainly, uh, but I, I prefer the few hundred mice <laughs> to the few hundred people. And the people I've trained, they're all over the place and they're, they're, they're fixing people left and right and driving my skeptical head crazy because, you know, this can't be. So, so there, there. I mean, there's one center who has uh, case reports on 500 people. I think. I mean, you know, the, 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 this isn't subtle. One, one location, 500 cases. Another location, 300 cases. Another look, you know. So there's there's enormous amounts of uh, clinical application uh, that have been done in recent years, mostly not by me. I'm not a healer. I can barely spell healing, <laughs> uh, but I can heal. Uh, but not because of my self-identity as a healer. It's just, it, it's not that big a deal. It's just, it's just not. Yeah. Well, so uh, tell us a little bit about what you've discovered or what the people you've trained have discovered when it comes to mental health diagnoses, things like depression or yeah. anxiety, trauma, whatever. Yeah, um, the, we, we've done there's certainly some mental health things that respond dramatically. Um, uh, we're very, very good with depression. Um, so even, even I mean, we've just stupid one, one case anecdote, somebody who essentially hadn't been out of bed in 20 years, you know, and had lost everything, was basically just sitting and staring and uh, in, 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 I guess, as severe as you possibly could get. Um, that, that fixes pretty quick. You know, and, and that's, that can be traumatic for the patient. I mean, imagine if you had winked out for 20 years. Um, you know, it's not really analogous, but you're, you're waking up like out of a coma because um, you, you're not really all there. Um, so, so, you know, some healing, too, can be pretty traumatic. Um, uh, it can be traumatic personally because you're boggled, uh, but it can be traumatic because a lot of people go through life uh, associating themselves as the disease and you take away their identity and they, they you know it's not as simple as oh boy you know it, it's simple with mice it's harder with uprights uh, because they tend to identify with uh, so we're very good with depression we're very good with bipolar um, so we've taken you know hospitalized folks and bipolar responds uh, there, there's a bunch never tried uh, like um, schizophrenic uh, never tried one. Uh, like to, because I'd like a data point, but, you know, I, I'm not really sure what works and what doesn't. Um, there are psychiatrists out there using this stuff. There are psychologists out there using this stuff and certainly using it on their patients um, and reporting to me things I don't believe. Um, but it, it, I, I don't know really the full range of, you know, mental health kind of stuff. We're, 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 we're really good at I don't know if you consider this mental health, like Alzheimer's. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, you, this is your turf, not mine, but uh, um, I don't know whether that would be classified under mental health, but Alzheimer's responds very, very quickly. Um, and that leads to a pattern that, that, that we've seen, um, at least in the clinical world, 
we seem to be better at taking away things you don't you don't want than we are to giving stimulating things that you're missing so if you have alzheimer's you have plaque on the brain we can take away the plaque and then your brain's left if your brain's not good uh, that's past our pay grade you know if you've got age-related dementia as distinct from alzheimer's age-related dementia is a complex series of series of symptoms and you've got an aging brain we'll just call it an aging brain we don't make you younger but you don't have the plaque anymore so you can have someone who is you know clearly not there you know you blank staring and you know they're, they're not really present and they'll turn around really really quickly because the plaque melts away uh the age-related dementia no so if you're starting with a compromised brain and you add plaque on top of it, best we seem to be able to do is take away the plaque. Uh, we don't unage your brain, you know, in any anything that's meaningful. So, so taking away stuff, taking away a tumor, taking away a inflammation, we're really, really good at inflammation. And I've done lab studies on cell cultures with inflammation. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty dramatic. Um, we're not good, at least in my system, we're not so far not really good at giving things that are missing. So an example of that would be a type 1 diabetic. Type 1 diabetic is missing something that the body's not putting out. And we come along and we treat. It doesn't seem to, doesn't fix so far. So far. Um, the, the, we, we've taken people who are seriously seriously diabetic and they've lost all sorts of body parts and they're blind and all that and we've given them about 50 percent of their sight back at about a 50 percent reduction in insulin which you know from a medical standpoint might be significant but it's not curing them you know that that's what i mean if you if you got cancer it's cured uh if you've got diabetes eh, you're a little eh, but i'm not impressed um they were impressed <laughs> but but you know and, and pretty grateful but i would say i doesn't seem to be going past that, you know, we're not, we're not getting the insulin going in the body by itself. You still need your injections, you still need whatever you need, uh, but you got your sight back, you know, and, and, and like that. Um, Parkinson's had tremendous difficulty with Parkinson's. Again, you're missing something, your brain's not putting something out. Reduction in symptoms, not particularly long-term, it's not curing yet. We're, we're, we're working on different ways to treat this kind of stuff and making some inroads, but as a kind of a generic rule, better to take away something that you, and, and than it is to stimulate something that's missing. Now, this may not be the case uh, with all healing techniques. I don't know other healing techniques. Again, I'm not a healer. Uh, I'm not a this master or that master. I've never studied healing. I can, can barely spell healing. Um, I just take the thing that I do and I take it into the lab and I dissect it, you know, into oblivion. I don't I, I'm certainly not suggesting that what happens in my healing is the same as what happens in other. So healing, it's not healing versus no healing. Um, healing, I, I, you know, there's all sorts of healing schools and certifications and I, I'm not involved with, with that stuff. A good clinician uh, is. Uh, because, you know, they should know what's out there, you know, and, and what do you do to help the client? So if you were, um, well, I'll give you an example. What, our technique is not particularly good at helping someone die. Uh, there are healing, that I'm told, that there are healing techniques and schools and such which calm the person down, you know, kind of like healing hospice kind of thing. You're there's a reasonable chance that a lot of us are going to die eventually. Um, so at the, as you, as you, you know, the transition to death um, is, is, can be traumatic. This isn't good at that. It doesn't calm you down in the same way, at least anecdotally, I've been told others do. So a good clinician facing a clearly about to die person wouldn't use mine. They'd use something else that has, you know, a better track record. On the other hand, if you're using my stuff, it is good for stuff 
that I have not seen in comparative anything. Uh, so again, a very different mindset if you're a clinician versus uh, an experimentalist. I, I don't do comparative healing research. I don't know any other healing techniques. I mean, I know of a couple, but I don't do them. I don't know them. I've never studied them. This is extraordinarily ripe for exploitation by somebody who wants to look at this thing. You know, and, and I don't mean just clinically, but I've been under really tightly controlled conditions. I think it would be an incredible service if someone could do comparative. And this works on this, that works on that. You know, not to, not to do a rank order. You know, this is better than that. You know, I, I give you a stupid example. It's real, but it's stupid. We're really good on aggressive malignancies. We can't do warts. Now that sounds stupid and you go, who cares? But from a researcher's point of view, this responds, that doesn't. So if another healing technique can do warts, I don't put one more, you know, you talk about cancer, the big C, you know, like that. Well, I think it, the warts are the big W. <laughs> you know, it's a, you know, I start flopping on the floor and run out of the room because warts scare me. I don't seem to affect them. And, and the interesting thing is the people who learn the technique also lose the ability to do warts. Now, now that's a clue, you know, that something real is going on and something is going on here that isn't going on in others and probably vice versa. You know, let's, let's stop the contest of who's better, you know, who's, let's, let's really just take a look at this stuff and see if we can unravel it. But, it, it would appear to me that my stuff, which I know a lot about, does things differently than other people's stuff that I don't know a lot about, at least by anecdote. They can do stuff, presumably, like the big W, uh, that we can't do. And, and, and so what is it about this that, that a wart becomes an obstacle? You know, that's a clue. I haven't been able to figure it out yet, but it's a, it's a clue. What is it that makes Parkinson so resistant, yet bipolar, and you're talking brain stuff in both, that bipolar responds? I don't know the answer, but it's certainly not healing versus no healing. Right. Well, coming from the clinician side of things, you know, myself being a clinical psychologist, I just see it as different tools you, for every yeah. job, for every person, yeah. for even every from session to session. Yeah. This particular tool is going to be more effective in that yeah. given moment for that thing than this tool might be. Right. Yeah. So yeah. it is hard sometimes to make those generalizations yeah. across board as as a clinician. My job is, like you said, to be educated in all these different tools yep. and try different ones for different things until the client reports a change, right? Exactly. Yep. And, and again, from an experimentalist point of view, and then you, you're trying this, you're trying that, you're trying that, you're trying that, you're trying that. And I'm going, well, how do you unravel that? You know, and that, that, that's what drives me crazy. And that's why I'm in the lab. And that's why you do what you do. <laughs> and why I do what I do. I, I, I would not be a good clinician. I'm, I'm good clinically with the stuff that I already know works in, in my thing, but I'm not, I don't have a clinical head. I can't unravel the complexities of an upright uh, at trying this, that, and the other. What was it, this technique? Was it that technique? Did it take, did it take a while for it to kick in? Was it just time? Was it, you know, and it, it'll, it'll drive me up the wall and I'll just run out of the room screaming. So I need to be safe in my little lab playing with rodents. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, to me, you know, from my perspective, what I have sort of gleaned from studying various modalities and working with clients for, you know, 20 plus years now is that in some way, all of these energy healing techniques seem to be utilizing or activating some inherent ability of the body of the, of the person in the body to heal itself. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I would I would completely agree. Yeah, I, I don't think uh, I, I I think of the person doing the healing, whether it's to mice or people or to whatever it is. I think of them as more of a channel of information, 
um, and where the information comes from and how they do it and all that stuff, I don't think anybody has really the foggiest idea, uh, nor do I think that someone who, who is the healer should pat themselves on the back like they did anything. Um, I think they happen to just be there. Uh, and, and what healing is, is the passing of information. But that, that leads to the next interesting question. If, if that's the case, why does healing technique A produce different information in healing technique B? You know, that, that becomes my problem. Your problem becomes when you're dealing with a client uh, is to figure out which technique to use on, on whom. You know, and that comes, that's, that's the art of clinical application. And I'm not, I'm not really good at it. <laughs> well, there's another piece to this I want to explore as well with you, which is this idea of the healing effects extending beyond just the intended client or, or rodent or whatever, right? Like I know as, as a healer, when I'm doing work on someone, I too am receiving some sort of benefit, you know, yeah. after doing the healing work, I feel better. Um, maybe a similar thing within me also gets stimulated yeah. and activated and you have this whole resonant bonding phenomenon. Tell us yeah. a little bit more about that. Yeah, the, the, I, I completely agree that the healer is getting a treatment as much as the healee. Uh, maybe the healee has more need, you know, at any given moment. But uh, frankly, since I don't think healing has much to do with the conscious mind, I think anybody doing a healing should thank the person they healed. Uh, because they just got a benefit. You know, it's, this isn't a one-way street. Um, everybody's winning, which I think is a reasonably good system to have. Uh, but I, I, I would agree that, that uh, the, the, the problem for healing is the problem for the healee as much as the healer. And by that, I mean that the healee has a need. So let's say, uh, let's put, you, you, need, you need vitamin D. Well, the healer is offering a multivitamin. <laughs> and if you take a multivitamin, you take what you need out of the array, array of, of things and you excrete the rest. So most of a multivitamin goes down the toilet eventually. And you take what you need and what you need Monday is different than what you need Tuesday. And so today I need some calcium and tomorrow I need some vitamin D and I'm a little short on vitamin A. And, I'm, and that's, you don't walk around obsessing about that. That'd be called neurosis. <laughs> uh, your body just does all that stuff. And I think what the healer is offering is essentially um, a vitamin pill, uh, a, a spectrum of possibilities, a spectrum of information that the healer's body then takes. I don't think this has much to do with the conscious mind. Um, and, and it's more than I think. I, I, you know, I've got some reasonably good data on this, that healing happens, and healing happens as an autonomic response to need. So if there's no need, I could be sitting here, you know, practicing my, my healing technique all day and all night. But if, if it's not being stimulated by the a recipient, that's the real key to this thing. It's, it's the recipient's need that, that they're going to take what they want. I'm just feeding pills uh, or I'm feeding white light and you need a particular color. Well, what's, what's blue? It's a subtraction from white light. If you're offering healing, you're offering a spectrum of possibilities that could be envisioned as light, it could be envisioned as nutrients, it could be envisioned in a, in a whole variety of different ways. Yeah. Um, the resonant bonding phenomenon that you bring up is seriously interesting um, and, and does have clinical as well as experimental implications. And the, the real short version is, I think that the textbook assumption that's found in all research texts, as well as I think would be contained within common sense, is that physically separate people or physically separate units or physically separate pills or physically separate mice are independent of each other. So you're where you are. I'm where I am. Okay, you do your thing. I do my thing. And you know, occasionally we get on a Zoom call and we talk and we do that, those kinds of things. But otherwise, you and I are not we're physically separate, so therefore we're independent. I don't think that's real. Uh, I think that 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 and and, and the, the the geeky term for this would be called locality. And locality means in this locale, this is happening, and in that locale, something else is happening, and the twains don't meet. Uh, Non-locality is a heretical idea, 
that suggests that physically separate individuals or groups might be somehow bonded. And maybe the separation which we're taught to see isn't the only thing that's going on. Um, and so you can see that, certainly you can see this in experience. Um, on, on, on Monday, you love your dog and on Tuesday, you hate your dog. Well, what changed? It's the same dog. But Monday, I love the, the, the little pooch and on Tuesday, I hate the little pooch. Well, what's happened is our connection. And so healing, I think, is connection. And another way to say connection could be, if you want to go uh, soft on me, uh, love. Uh, it's, it's, it's a connection. And so we've all experienced connection. We've all experienced disconnection. It's not entanglement. It's a fluid connection and disconnection. Healing is the art of connection and offering to that to whom you're connected stuff. Now, healies, in turn, can be connected to each other. And what I found in mice experiments is that mice can become bonded to each other even at physically separate distances. So that a treatment to one mouse is a treatment to another mouse. A treatment to one cage is a treatment to another cage. A treatment to any part of the subjects is a treatment to all the subjects. And I'm sure at this point, as sure as I can be, that I have these connections which are sometimes called placebos. And a, a, a placebo, I think, is actually a connection of a, of a connected physically spatial groups to something. It could be a drug, it could be a stimulus, it could be healing. And I think that the question we have and the, the motherlode question in all this is what makes connections and what un, unmakes connections. And in terms of applications, I think you also would have tremendous clinical possibilities if you as a clinical psychologist could bond somehow your patients together, obviously with their permission, if there were a bondable you know, group, um, I think you could get a, a, an extra bang for the buck by a, a group phenomenon and a group treatment. Uh, a treatment to anyone will be a treatment to all, and there may be a collective effect, even though you're only observing you know, one-on-one -on -one treatment or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it happens already in group therapy, right? I mean, we already have that effect. And I think of Lynn McTaggart's work with the, I was in her work, workshop where she had, you know, all of us, one person was the identified, you know, patient, yeah. but all of us were like, together, you know, sending that person healing energy. And yet we all received healing as well. It was very palpable. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think that stuff is real. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it's by real, I mean, I think it's a real physical phenomenon. I've studied it uh, using EEGs and functional MRIs and, you know, geeky toys. Uh, but basically what it shows is that we actually can physically connect. And I have, you know, seriously controlled studies showing brains going into phase locking at a distance. So in, in essence, they're locked. Now that doesn't mean your conscious mind is aware. And I'm not a big fan of the conscious mind. I don't think it's as interesting as people think it is. I'm much more interested in the, the autonomic stuff that goes on. And I think healing is an autonomic response to need. Um, and I, I think that if, if you and I go into brain phase lock, it doesn't mean you're walking down the street and you go, oh, there's Bankston, you know, <laughs> you know, sensitives might might feel that. But but in, in ordinary life, I think there's there's bonds all over the place. Uh, and I think they're real. And, and I think a, a, an incredibly interesting area is trying to figure out what makes bonds and what breaks bonds. And, and I see I see the bonding in mice. I see the bonding in cell cultures. I see the bonding in people. I see the bonding all over the place. So every, everybody has a different conceptual lens where they see the world. Uh, one of my most fruitful lens creations is this idea of resonant bonding. It, it starts to take a lot of the world that's confusing and, and it, it, within it, if you start thinking in terms of resonant bonding and you give up the idea that separateness means independence, the world starts to take on a different, different flavor. Well, and I think it offers us a lot of hope too, right? I mean, with so much conflict and strife and everything going on in the world right now, yeah. maybe as more of us start to activate these healing energies within ourselves, with clients, whatever it is, maybe it has that resonant effect 
on the world as a whole. It might I, again right now past my pay grade, but it would be, it's a nice it's a it's a nice thought. Yeah. So tell us what you're up to now, and tell us a little bit about the trainings that you're offering. How can people find out more about the Bangston Method? Well, um, um, uh, I have a website. Uh, I'm told I don't really look at it. Uh, someone else does it, but uh, BangstonResearch.com uh, will have, I think, research papers. I think workshops. I think ways to do this, ways to do that. Uh, I've got. We, we're just running now two clinical studies out on, on healing that are just coming from Bankston Research people who have joined the forum and they're they're playing around. And I, you know, you, you put out a call for volunteers and people are all excited about this stuff. You know, they, they're having fun. That's a beautiful thing. So they're out there playing, they're out there having fun, they're taking part, you know, they're helping me out in research and they're becoming part of it and, 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 and all those things. It's, um, you know, that, that, that's a good thing. So the trainings are listed, uh, to be honest with you, I don't know when the next ones are, I don't pay that much attention. I just, I just did one in Germany. Uh, I, I didn't go to Germany because, you know, Germany's doesn't exist anymore. We're not allowed to talk to people in Germany and we get COVIDed and all that stuff. Um, so, um, uh, I've, I've done a bunch of Zoom things and there's probably some coming up in 2021. I just, off the top, I don't know whether they'll be live or distance, you know, and exactly, but I, I don't handle those kinds of scheduling things. So the best I can offer you for when the trainings are is to check out bankstonresearch.com and, you know, poke around and, and, and see what, what that's like. What I'm working on now is, um, I, I'd like to make healing whether healing happens isn't interesting anymore. And um, the, the, I mean, I'm into the kind of like the secondary questions of dose response questions and, you know, what does this work on better than the other and, and, and all of those things. Um, but, it, and let's say that healing can be taught, you know, so let's start with that assumption. So let's say a uh, uh, hundred people in your audience take a workshop from me. And let's assume, you know, thought experiment that everything works perfectly. You know, it's not going to happen, but everything. And so these hundred people now can go out and do, you know, the stuff that I'm teaching and they all go out and teach a hundred people. Well, that's beautiful. So you got a hundred times a hundred and then, and then they go teach, you know, there's still an inexhaustible supply of people in pain. And so to make this scalable, I think is interesting. And if we can make it scalable, we can also take out the, the craziness from it and, and stop making it, don't confuse healing with sacred, you know, or it's not, it's not this, you know, ethereal thing. It's, it, it's healing. Give me a break. You're healing all the time. Uh, so if you study the immune system, you'll get a real dose of healing. Uh, you'll see miracles all over the place. Uh, if you study hands-on healing, you'll see miracles. Uh, but I don't know that one miracle is better than the other. Uh, but but to take healing one on one, as opposed to an inexhaustible supply of people around the world who who need it, how do you get it to them? And so what I'm trying to do now is replicate the healing without the healer. And if I can do it in such a way to make it scalable, then it becomes globally available. So the, the, what I've I've looked into. Uh, in some detail, and you know, people can poke on the website and look at some publications. Is storing it. I've stored healing at this point in organic and inorganic material. I've in organic material, for example, I've stored it in cotton. Uh, and cotton, uh, if you bring cancer cells near the, the charged cotton, they genomically change. You know, in a reliable way. It's again, not, it's not it has nothing to do with belief. It has nothing to do with anything like that. So I can store it in cotton, I can store it in water, I can store it in a variety of materials, uh, but that doesn't necessarily make it scalable. So if I have a bunch of cotton and I have to charge each piece, who cares? You know, it's interesting from a scientific point of view, but it doesn't make it scalable. But if I could get cotton to charge other cotton <laughs> and it becomes a self-replicating system, I have something scalable. If I can get water to charge water, I have a self-replicating system. If I have a recording, and I, that recording can be uploaded into the web, then it can, so the, 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 it's those kinds of things. So I had some recent published publications in a biology journal showing that a recording we've made, it's, it's pretty over the top and elaborate, of people practicing my method inside of a Faraday cage while charging cotton 
The playback, uh, it, again, it's, it's an over the top with 38 different kinds of fancy detectors going on. We collapse that to a, a recording that you can't hear and we play it to cancer cells and they know it and they respond. And we get reliable 68 genomic change. We did this at Brown University, 68 reliable genomic changes in cancer cells when they hear nothing. Uh, if you put your hands around, you get 68 reliable changes. So it's doing, but now this is uploadable and downloadable. You said, I mean, that, that's upping the ante here. We're playing, we have a couple of experiments out now on animals as well as uh, some clinical trials on some water that will turn into a self-replicating system. And that seems to be doing it. And so if we can get water turning into water that, that heals, turning it to, you know, and have it replicate, that becomes a scalable proposition. In the case of the recording, I mean, we're about to do some studies starting about next week uh, in Tokyo. Um, I've got some studies about to start in Houston. I've got some studies about to start in Providence. I've got some studies about to start in the Netherlands. I've got, and I keep going. Um, and and we're, we, we've got this, but it's all involving the idea of a self-replicating system. Does it reproduce the healing phenomenon and does it do it in a way that makes it scalable? And so far, fingers crossed, because it's seriously interesting, it appears to be. Wow. And so if we could get a downloadable cancer cure, that'd be kind of fun. Yeah. And you've expressed that you would- A downloadable cure would be fun. Yeah, you would like to have a global cure for cancer that's accessible to anyone. You've be kind of that. fun. Yeah. yeah. Be kind wow. of fun. We'll see where it goes. But but that that's my current thing, because again, I've been doing this for 115 years. I'm only going to do research. I've decided I'm, another 80 years and I'm stopping. Uh, and so you know, I'll have done my time. Then I'm going on retirement or semi-retirement. And because there are probably more projects that I have to do then, even then. But um, if we can turn this into a self-replicating, globally scalable phenomenon, then I don't care what believers say. Let only the skeptics get fixed. I'm okay. <laughs> Such fascinating work. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, I hope that the listeners have had their minds and their beings opened up to this. There's so many infinite possibilities for energy healing. Um, we're going to add your website and all the information in the show notes. Any final thoughts you want to leave us with, Dr. Bankston? Yeah, don't believe anybody who believes what they believe. <laughs> Wise <laughs> it's words. An, it's an interesting area, but we're all groping in the dark with our eyes closed. <laughs> Thank you so much for all you've contributed. Thank you all for tuning in today. If you like this podcast, please be sure to share, like, and comment so we can get this information out in the world and more people can know about the infinite possibilities available with these alternative perspectives on healing and mental health. I'm your host, Dr. Adriana Popescu. See you next time. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. This has been Dr. Adriana Popescu. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe and share with others. To find out more about me, my guests, and more, please visit my website at adrianapopescu.org. See you next time.